You are listening to a podcast by Spring Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spring Hill Church is called to reach everyday people with God's grace, His unconditional love, and the life-changing power of His Word. Thanks for listening, and if you would like more information, you can visit us online at springhill.cc. All right, well, we, we will open in prayer and we'll get started tonight. We're going to have a lot of material to cover tonight, but it's going to be good. Uh, But let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your faithfulness. Father, we love you with all of our hearts. We're so grateful for this uh, opportunity that we have this occasion, Father, to gather around your word. And Lord, I thank you once again, that even though we aren't in the same physical location, I thank you, Father, that that doesn't make any difference to the Holy Ghost. I thank you, Father, that your presence and your anointing is in each and every one of their homes, just like it is with me. And Father, I thank you that the teacher, the Holy Spirit, Lord, is the one that will bring revelation and insight tonight. We uh, purpose in our hearts, Father, to have hearing ears and open hearts to receive from you. And Father, we believe to be taught, and we thank you because we will not be the same by the time this is all said and done. And Lord, I thank you that you will cause our eyes to be open to the covenant that we have with you. We praise you for it and believe you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right. Well, if you all want to turn in your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to make a couple of comments to uh, kick us off and to review just what we talked about a little bit last week. Of course, this series, this is uh, week number five in the series, talking about a better covenant. Uh, And we were taking that title from Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, where it says that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. And as we've been saying every single week, it's not that the old covenant was bad. It's just that the new covenant is better. And it's better because it's ratified in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's based on his death, burial, and resurrection. And so uh, like like I heard somebody say one time, that's what makes it more gooder. And so anyway, last week we talked about the instructions that Moses was given on, and there were three sets of instructions that he was given. Number one, he was told to construct the tabernacle. He was given all the parameters and everything, all the description of how to build the tabernacle, the measurements, dimensions, and so forth. Then uh, God gave him instructions on how to set up the system of sacrifices, what what was supposed to be done in worship at the tabernacle. And then the last thing that God instructed Moses to do was to create the priesthood. And of course, God led him to start that with his brother Aaron. Aaron became the first high priest. And so then the priesthood was built underneath Aaron, and they were all given their instructions as to what their duties were and what they were to accomplish. And then God gave the law, the Ten Commandments that we're all familiar with. And uh, the the Ten Commandments are not part of the blood covenant, but the purpose of them was to point the way for the Hebrew person to the blood covenant. It was to direct them to the covenant that they needed to have in their relationship with God. The the law, the commandments were uh, designed to show and reveal sinfulness in man, but holiness in God, and that we needed a relationship with the holy God. And so 
uh, you know, man was, was uh, given those commandments again to direct man to the need and necessity of the blood covenant. And here's why, because there is no remission of sins, no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood and blood is necessary. Blood is required. And so, uh, and the same is true for us. The, the word of God shows us our need for a savior shows us our, uh, heavenly father and his holiness. And then our need for a relationship with him through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the same thing is true for us. And then again, the law, the tabernacle, the priesthood and the sacrificial system, were all of the old covenant, but all of that was designed to point to the new covenant. And so here's God's ultimate plan. And I want to want to remind you of this. We've stated it maybe in a roundabout way all throughout this study, but here's God's ultimate plan. God's plan has always been for all of these things that we read about in the Old Testament to point the way, to lead the way to the ultimate sacrifice that only God himself could make. You know, this is all about Jesus and Jesus being, of course, God made flesh. God's plan says this, quote, although the penalty for sin is death, talking to us, we, you humans, do not have to pay it. God said, I'll come to earth and I'll pay it for you. I'll purchase purchase your salvation with my own blood. And so that's the whole point of the, the covenant. It's the whole point of everything in our relationship with God is that God instituted all of this. He's the one that decided to come and to pay the penalty for us, to shed his blood, to purchase our salvation. So let's back up and let's look in Genesis for just a few moments. And God begins to give us a preview of what's to come. So let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. And by the way, let me uh, mention this again. This A lot of the material, most all the material for these previous lessons is coming out of this book called The Miracle of the Scarlet Thread by Richard Booker. I highly, highly, highly recommend that you get this and add it to your library. It's an absolutely awesome book. But let's look at uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, and let's see what happened in the fall of man. So it says, and so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they, excuse me, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Okay, so what happened here? Well, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, sinned. They disobeyed God. And so the moment that they disobeyed God, they knew that they were guilty. They were immediately ashamed. And so then what they endeavored to do was cover their nakedness by grabbing fig leaves and trying to sew them together. And this was their way of trying to address their sin problem. This was their way of trying to cover their sin. But God had a better way. If you drop down to verse 21, 
It says in uh, Genesis 3.21, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin. He made skin clothes for them, and he clothed them with it. And so as we mentioned early on in this series, we talked about how God uh, must kill an innocent animal and accept its blood in substitute as a temporary covering for the sin of Adam and Eve. And so God killed the animal and skinned the animal and then put the skins on Adam and Eve. Now, you know, and I, I've glossed over this when I when I mentioned it before, but I want to point out a couple of details. You know, up until this moment, creation was perfect. And, and if you'll recall, there was no such thing as death in creation. Nothing died. Uh, plants didn't die. Uh, people didn't die. Animals didn't die. Uh, none of that, um, death was not a part of the, the ecosystem of the earth. It was just not, and it was introduced in, in result of Adam's sin. And so, you know, Adam and Eve had never seen death before. Now, here's what I want you to see. I believe, you know, the Bible doesn't say this explicitly, but it's implied. I believe God had Adam watch while he killed the animal or animals to get the skins in order to cover them. Uh, you know, and it must have sickened them to see this thing that they had never seen before called death and to see these animals being, uh, you know, giving up their lives, their blood being shed. And so when God did this, I believe he had Adam watch him and to see as he killed the animal and the blood was shed. And you'll, you'll understand why I believe that in just a moment. So when God looked at them, he saw those fig leaves on, and, but he still saw their sin. He saw what it looks like when a man in his own puny strength tries to cover his own sin. And, you know, people still try and do that today. People in their own uh, tradition, their own way of trying to get to God, try and cover for their sin. And there's nothing that will cover for sin except for the shedding of blood, and in particular, the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when God looked at them with the animal skins on them, he knew blood had been shed and the price to cover their sin temporarily, although, had been paid. Now, let's fast forward to chapter 4. And I want to look at the story of Cain and Abel and maybe shed a little light on that so you get some insight into what was going on there. Now, Cain was the older of the two boys, and he was a farmer. He grew uh, vegetables and things like that. Abel was a shepherd. And so let's go over to Genesis chapter 4, and let's begin in verse 1. I want to read verses 1 through 16. And it says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. She then bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. Now here's... Again, pay attention to the details. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. Well, we can tell right then 
just immediately at first glance why God respected Abel's offering. And the reason being was blood was shed in order to provide for the sacrifice, the offering that Abel offered. And with Cain's offering, no blood was shed. And it says in verse five, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, of course, we know he lied. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Now, let's unravel some details of this story, because again, uh, there's some things in here that we often gloss over. So, we know from the story that Adam must have taught his sons about the sacrifice and the purpose of shed blood. Now, there's a couple of reasons that we know this. Number one, how did Abel know to sacrifice and to offer up uh, one of the sheep or, or part of his flock that he was tending uh, and shed the blood of that particular animal if that was not something that had been modeled for him or exemplified before him uh, in his father. The other thing is, God is a just God, and he does not hold people accountable for what they do not know. And notice this, Cain's uh, sacrifice was not pleasing to God. God did not have respect for Cain's sacrifice but he did have respect for Abel's sacrifice. So what this tells us is that Adam must have instructed them and told them that in order to approach God, there has to be shedding of blood somehow. And so when, when the boys set out to offer sacrifices to the Lord, blood was shed on one and it wasn't on the other, and the Lord had respect to uh, the one that had the shed blood. And that's because Abel knew that that's what he should do. And so God approved of Abel's offering because this was the way that had been established for sinful man to approach God. Therefore, Abel was acceptable to God, not by his own goodness, but by and based on the innocent blood sacrifice. So the blood was the evidence that the penalty for sin had been paid. 
Now, just make a note of this verse. I want to read to you Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4. Hebrews 11, 4. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. In other words, the example is still being given to us that Abel offered the sacrifice that was pleasing to God because blood was shed. Now, Cain knew better, but he rejected God's way. Instead of bringing an innocent sacrifice, listen to this, he brought the fruit of his own labor. He presented to God something that he had produced and presented that to the Lord, hoping that that would please God. And Cain probably brought his very best, but it represented the very best of his own works. And I've got news for any of us, myself included. There is no way you can please God by trying to offer to him your good works. Now, we need to do good works, but we don't do good works because we're trying to get right with God. We do good works because we are right with God. And so Cain was trying to uh, offer to the Lord uh, the works of his own hands, and, and it was not part of what had already been explained to them, and so therefore it wasn't pleasing to the Lord. Cain was trying to approach God with his own self-righteousness. And in Cain's sacrifice, there was no evidence that the penalty of sin had been paid. Why? Because there was no bloodshed. It was sinful man trying to approach a holy God on his good works rather than through the blood of an innocent substitutionary sacrifice. And you know, I'm, uh, it, it, it's, it's sad to say, but believe it or not, you know, there are going to be people that go before the Lord on the judgment day and try and tell Jesus all the good things that they did and how they tried to win his approval by, uh, you know, all the good works that they did. And, you know, his response is going to be, you know, be gone from me. I never knew you. And the reason being is because they never acknowledged the blood that was shed to pay the price for their sin. They only approached God based on their own works, and that does not work in God's relationship. So God's rejection angered Cain, and he became outraged at God. But notice this, God gave him an opportunity to repent. There in Genesis chapter 4, verses 5 and 7, or five through seven. Let me read it to you from the New Living Translation. It says, but God did not accept Cain and his gift, and this made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Now, if you think about this, and of course, this is before Cain killed Abel, but Cain, God gave Cain a way to be able to repent and go back and be able to do the right thing, to offer the sacrifice the right way. But Cain, uh, you know, did not repent, 
Evil filled his heart. He later murdered his brother and then lied to God about it. And so in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12, just make a note of that, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12, in the Passion Translation says this, We should not be like Cain, who yielded to the evil one and brutally murdered his own brother Abel. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brother's actions were righteous. And so what we see going down history after this incident is the descendants of Cain turned their back on the covenant and they chose to follow their own evil ways. And so we see later on that Adam and Eve came back together and they had another son named Seth who called upon the name of the Lord and accepted the sacrifice uh, to cover their sins. And then later on, we see where Noah knew, you know, even after, I mean, you know, many years, Noah knew to offer a sacrifice to God as soon as he stepped on dry land following the flood. Why? Because these instructions had been passed down from generation to generation. And then, of course, as we studied last week and the week before, we talked about Abraham and how Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac. And so the, the premise of blood covering and atoning for man's sin was not something new. It goes all the way back to the garden. And so let's fast forward now to Moses. So the Ten Commandments were given to serve as a mirror. We said that last week. It was designed to show the people God's holiness and man's sinfulness. It was meant to send man running to the blood covenant for any kind of hope of relationship with God, okay? Now, I want to also point out to you, you know, the, the, the concept of God's grace is not only a New Testament thing, it's a Bible thing. It's all throughout God's dealings with mankind. So the, the Ten Commandments also serve to reveal God's grace to man. No matter how hard man tries, he cannot come uh, to or, or do anything. Let me back up. He cannot do anything to earn a relationship with God on his own. This is provided for by God. And so God begins, as I said to you at the beginning, he shows Moses the tabernacle. He shows Moses the priesthood. And then he shows Moses the sacrificial system that is to be set up and that we see all throughout the Old Testament. Okay, now, what I want to do is for the balance of our time tonight, I'm going to talk about in detail this sacrificial system so that you can begin to see God's hand in this and his provision for the people and how it points and paints a, a, a beautiful picture of what we have in our relationship with God through Christ. Okay, so uh, the system had five types of sacrifices, and each sacrifice would reveal something uh, unique about the nature of the final sacrifice that God himself was going to offer. So all of these five sacrifices point to what God was going to do when he offered up the Lord Jesus Christ. And taken as a whole, if you look at all five of these at one time, it paints a complete picture of the perfect sacrifice, okay? Now, 
Let me give you some numbers. You don't have to remember this. It's just interesting. Uh, the system called for 1,273 public sacrifices a year. It included sacrifices each morning, evening, each Sabbath, the first day of the month, during special feast days of assembly and celebration. And so what that amounts to is when you add all those together and all those ceremonies and everything that was going on, it amounts to over 2 million sacrifices that would have taken place over that span of a year. And uh, so God established this system, again, pointing the way to the perfect sacrifice. And in addition to these public sacrifices that were offered every year, there were individual sacrifices that were offered. So, uh, you know, the Day of Atonement was only something that the high priest could do, but I could go anytime I needed to into the outer court of the tabernacle, and I could offer a sacrifice just because I wanted to voluntarily. And this happened all the time. And so what God is doing by initiating all of this is telling us this, and I want you to remember this one point as we talk about the five sacrifices, and that is this. It is clear that man can only approach God through an innocent blood sacrifice. It is clear that man can only approach God through an innocent blood sacrifice. And by the way, that has not changed. It is still the same. The only the good news is it's not the blood of animals and, and goats and calves and lambs and all of that. It was one sacrifice that was made 2,000 years ago that you and I can have faith in and rely upon, and that's what gives us relationship with God. All right? So let me give you these five sacrifices, and then we'll break them down. Number one is called the sin offering the sin offering. Number two is the trespass offering. Trespass offering. Number three is the burnt offering, B-U-R-N-T, burnt offering. Number four is the meal offering, M-E-A-L, and then number five is the peace offering. The peace offering. So you have the sin offering, the trespass offering, the burnt offering, the meal offering, and the peace offering. Okay, so these, all these offerings were to be a physical outward expression of the desire and longing of, of a man's heart to seek communion with God. Okay, now... If you want to, on your notes, out beside, you know, do a little grouping there, and beside sin offering and trespass offering, write the word mandatory. Those two offerings were mandatory, and they were associated with the sins of the nation as a whole and the sins of the individuals. So those two offerings were mandatory. The bird offering, the meal offering, and the peace offering were spontaneous voluntary offerings. So you could write voluntary out beside those three. So again, as I said, the burnt offering, meal offering, and peace offering, if I wanted to do that anytime, I could go and do that. But there were only specific times when the sin offering and the trespass offering were offered up. 
Okay. So uh, let's talk about number one, the sin offering. Okay. The sin offering. And let me give you the reference for that. That's found in Leviticus chapter four, verses one through five, and chapter six, verses 24 through 30. Leviticus 4, 1 through 5, and chapter 6, 24 through 30. Okay, now let me just describe this to you, the sin offering. You offered this offering because you were a sinner and not because you had sinned. Okay, the sin offering, in other words, the voluntary offerings were the ones I could go offer if I had sinned. This offering is required because without Christ, of course, and during the old covenant, I was a sinner. I am a sinner. So I have to offer this sacrifice because I'm a sinner, not just because I sinned. Okay. Now I want, I learned this a long time ago and it would do you good to remember this. Okay. Remember this. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Let me say that again. A, a person that doesn't know Christ, they are not a sinner because they sin. They sin because they are a sinner. In other words, uh, in a sinner, it's part of his nature. It's part of what makes you who you are. That it's born into you when you are born into the earth. And so because you you are a sinner, that's what causes you to sin. Okay. Now the good news is in Christ, we're no longer a sinner. So the power of sin over us has been broken. Okay. Now this offering, the sin offering had to be spotless, have no defects whatsoever or blemishes. And it's foreshadowing the, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, the lamb without spot or wrinkle. And so what happens is when you bring this sacrifice and you remember I showed you the layout of the tabernacle last week. And so in that outer court, there was a, a an altar there. And the priest would meet you at the altar with this sacrifice. And so what would happen is you would lay the sacrifice up on the altar and you would place both your hands on the sacrifice and you would lean on it. And while you do that, you slit the, sac the animal's throat and the blood begins to drain out. And while you do this, the reason that you lean on the animal is because you are personally identifying with this sacrifice. You are laying hands on him, and you feel this animal literally dying under the weight of you leaning on the sacrifice. And so you feel him dying on your behalf, and you are grateful for this substitute. Except for the grace of God, it should be you on that altar and not the substitute. Okay. So then the priest has a, a, a bowl, a vial, if you will, and he catches the blood that's draining out of that animal at the point where its throat was slit. He sprinkles blood on the horns of that altar there. And then later he takes the fat of the inward part. Okay because it protects all the vital organs within that animal, and he burns it on the altar. Now, what this represents is you, as a sinner, 
letting this animal be your substitute. And as the priest is pulling out all of those vital organs and everything, it is symbolic that you are giving your heart to God. So the priest then takes the carcass of the animal outside of the camp, away from the presence of God, with some embers from the fire there in that altar, and then burns the carcass away from the camp because the sin, your sin, had been placed upon this animal. And so it had to be removed from the presence of God. You and you know, portions of some of these offerings you would be able to take and consume and the priests and so forth, but you got none of this offering because that would indicate a communion with God, and God can't commune where there is sin. Now, here's what here's the whole point of this sacrifice. Does anybody remember in your study of when Jesus was crucified, where he was crucified? Golgotha. All right. Does anybody know where Golgotha or Calvary is? Outside of Jerusalem. It's outside of the city. It's outside of Jerusalem. So if you'll remember, Jerusalem, uh, excuse me, Jesus was forced to carry his cross to Calvary, which was outside of the city. So the substitutionary sacrifice just as in Moses' tabernacle, was offered and, and, and was completely consumed outside of the city or the, the, the camp, if you will. So the same thing, Jesus was offered for us outside of the gates of the city of Jerusalem. Again, painting the way for this sacrifice, all right? Let's talk about number two, the trespass offering. The trespass offering. This is found in Leviticus chapter 5, verses 14 through 19, and chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. That's Leviticus 5, 14 through 19, and Leviticus 7, 1 through 10. So the, the sin offering dealt with your sinful condition. The trespass offering deals with your position before God. The, the sin, excuse me, the sin offering dealt with your sinful position before God, but the trespass offering deals with your walk with God. So one deals with your sinfulness. This one deals with your walk with God. So you offer this one for the sins you have committed rather than for the overarching sin problem itself. So when you sin, you would offer the trespass offering. And so, again, you would have your sacrificial animal. You would bring it. You would place it on the altar. And as you lay hands on the altar, you confess out loud your the particular sin that you were guilty of. So com- confessing your sin removes the burden of guilt, and it brings continuous forgiveness so that you can approach God with a clear conscience. Again, think about this. What does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, again, we don't physically lay our hands on a sacrificial animal, but when we sin and we miss God 
we are able to go to God and through the trespass offering of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are able to confess our sin. And because his blood was better than the blood of bulls and goats, his blood still cleanses today, still purchases our forgiveness today, and it is able to provide for us a, a clear conscience so that we can approach God without guilt or shame, okay? So again, the priest would sprinkle the blood back and forth on the altar. The interesting thing is the priest was able to, once the, the sacrifice was on the altar and it was burnt there, that the priest is able to eat the balance of the offering. Here's another part that was required of this sacrifice, okay? Now, you know, there's two aspects to, to our sin, meaning our sinning, in the sense of, you know, when you do something by yourself, that's between you and God. But when you do something that involves another per person, uh, either you offend them or you wrong somebody, then that has to be dealt with too. And even in this Old Testament situation, God had a way of dealing with that. So if you had sinned against somebody, you came and you offered the trespass offering. You went through all of that, but it was also required that you make restitution for the wrongs you committed. And what was required by the law was, is if it required or if a loss was incurred by the other person, you were required to pay 20% for their loss. You had to replace what was lost and add 20% to it. So you made right with them what the 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 occasion the the offense was was done. So God again has already forgiven us for all of our sins because all of them past present and future were nailed to the cross and so we can stay free of condemnation and guilt by confessing our sins to God and claiming the forgiveness that is already ours through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know, there's not a requirement under the new covenant that you replace what was wrong if somebody else is involved and then add 20%, but it is still required that we seek forgiveness or we offer forgiveness if somebody else is involved in that offense, okay? So those two offerings, you were expressing your desire for God, but you have to go on. There's more to it. And here's what I want you to see. A lot of Christians stop right here with those two offerings in a figurative sense. What I mean is that they realize that the sin offering has been made through the Lord Jesus Christ and the trespass offering has been made through the Lord Jesus Christ, but that's as far as they go in their relationship with God. They deal with the sin problem they deal with what's necessary to correct their walk with God, but they do nothing to carry it further. And that's what those other three sacrifices were designed to do. The Christian must move past the first two offerings in order to experience the abundant Christian life that God wants us to have. So let's go on. Number three, we're, let's talk about the burnt offering. The burnt offering, okay? And this is found in Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3 through 17. Leviticus 1, 3 through 17, and chapter 6, verses 8 through 13. 
Now, the burnt offering expresses your readiness to commune with God. God, I'm ready to fellowship with you. And so I'm presenting myself to you of my own free will. And again, as I said, this is one of the three voluntary offerings. God doesn't force you to make this offering. This is something that you do on your own. So, of course, in the old tradition, you bring a bull, a lamb, or goat. And if you are poor, you bring a turtle dove or a pigeon. And then here's the difference between these animals. And I, and I want you to picture this the best that you can. These animals are ones that you would raise. The Just listen, picture a lamb, for instance. So you have sheep, and this lamb is born, and this lamb becomes a part of your family. This lamb is domesticated. This lamb, uh, you know, becomes like a, a pet of the family and so forth. And this lamb, again, has to meet all, the, all of the qualifications. But here's what I want you to see. This one's different because you have a personal investment and relationship with this particular sacrifice. And so again, you lay your hands on the animal after it's placed on the north side of the altar, you kill it. And here, you know, here is this animal that's precious to you and your family, and you are sacrificing it to the Lord. You, you, you're leaning on it. You feel the life slipping out of its body. The priest catches the blood and sprinkles it all around the altar. Now, not to be too graphic, but this is what was required. The priest then, after the animal has died, skins the animal to expose all of its inward parts. The priest then thoroughly examines it for defects. If satisfied with the examination, he burns the entire animal on the altar except for the skin. Now, here's why I said that these are required for you to go on in your relationship with God. This offering represents your willingness to give your entire self to the Lord. With this offering, you're telling God, God, I'm not holding anything back. Everything in my life belongs to you. Everything I have, everything I am, all of this belongs to you. And the reason that the priest would skin the animal and examine it was he was looking for defects. And in this sacrifice, you're bringing yourself to God, and you're, you're almost praying a prayer where you're saying, Lord, examine my heart. Show me anything in me that is impure, that is not right in your eyes, and help me to deal with that. And so then, as the, the sacrifice was burned upon the altar, the Bible says that the smoke would ascend as a sweet-smelling aroma to to the, to the Lord. Okay. Now, again, Jesus was killed outside of the city of Jerusalem, but notice I said that you place this sacrifice on the north side of the altar. Jesus was killed on the north side outside of Jerusalem. And so in his sacrifice, which was complete, we present ourselves as a living sacrifice by yielding to the Lordship of Jesus over our lives. And again, as I said, we lay ourselves before the Lord to inspect us and search us. And that's got to be our attitude with God. If we're going to move on in our relationship with God, we've got to be at a place where we say, Lord, I don't want anything hidden in me. I want it all exposed to you. 
you know, so that I can become who you want me to be. And uh, so that's what the purpose of that offering, the burnt offering was all about. Let's quickly go to number four, which was the meal offering, M-E-A-L, meal offering. If you're reading from the old King James, it would say meat offering. It wasn't a meat offering in the sense of meat like from an animal. Uh, the reason the old King James says meat is because in Elizabethan English, if I was coming over to your house for dinner, I would not say dinner. I would say I'm coming to your house for meat. And so it was their way of expressing that it was a meal. And so this is found in Leviticus chapter 2 and also chapter 6, verses 14 through 23. So all of chapter 2 in Leviticus, and then chapter 6, verses 14 through 23. Now, the meal offering represents your walk in communion with God. So with the burnt offering, I'm saying, God, all of me belongs to you. Examine my heart. Examine my life. Show me anything that needs to be corrected and adjusted. And this one represents my walk in communion with God. And this was the only sacrifice that was offered without blood. Okay, need to make a note of that. However, it was offered alongside with the burnt offering. So you'd offer the burnt offering, and then you would offer the meal offering at the same time. So let me tell you what, the, what made up the meal offering. This offering consisted of fine flour mingled with oil. Salt was added for seasoning and frankincense for spice. And so again, if you can picture in your mind, uh, this would be a flat, unleavened cake. So you offer it as raw flour or unleavened cake or wafer, and absolutely no leaven or honey was to be used in this. Very, very specific. And so you present this, these, these um, unleavened cakes to the priest. The priest then offers a handful to God, and then he eats the remainder of it. And so the handful in God's eyes represents the whole offering. So when the priest would offer that part to the Lord, it was the same thing as the whole thing. Now, let me tell you why this, this offering is so special. Anytime that you see leaven mentioned in the Bible, it's always representative of sin. You know, leaven is like yeast. It, uh, it, it represents sin. And if you'll remember, you know, with the Passover meal, they were required to eat unleavened bread because it was bread that had no yeast in it, didn't rise. And so uh, there was no sin involved. Honey, when used with leaven, represents the pleasures of sin. So whenever you saw somebody in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that had leaven and honey mixed together, leaven was sin, but honey represents the pleasures of sin. Now, I want to ask you a question. Did Jesus ever sin? No. no. Absolutely not. So as the perfect meal offering, Jesus never sinned, nor did he ever know the pleasures of sin. He never sinned, nor did he ever know the pleasures of sin. So there was no leaven or honey in the life of Jesus. But let me go back. Notice what it said. The offering consisted of fine flour mingled with oil. 
Oil in the in the scriptures is always symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Oil is always symbolic of the anointing or the Holy Spirit or both. Okay? So there was no leaven or honey in the life of Jesus. Jesus was filled to the full with the oil of the Holy Spirit. And God wants the same thing for us. This is why this, this offering represents your walk with God, because God doesn't want you to have any leaven, any honey, but he wants you to be filled with the oil of his spirit. God doesn't want you experiencing sin nor the pleasures of sin, but he wants you to be filled to the full with the Holy Spirit. And that's what this particular meal offering represented. So again, you offered up the burnt offering, and then you offered up together with that, this, this meal offering. And one had to do with, uh, you know, your relationship with God and um, your readiness to commune with God. And the other had to do with your walk with God, being free from sin and being free from the pleasures of sin. Then lastly, number five, we have the peace offering, P-E-A-C-E, -E, peace offering. So, and this is found in Leviticus chapter three, all of chapter three. And then it's also in chapter seven, verses 11 through 36. So all of Leviticus three, and then chapter seven, 11 through 36. So just to recap, all right. So through the sin and trespass offering, we're coming to God and we're saying, hey, God, I need a relationship with you. I want to commune with you. And those two sacrifices made the way for me to be clean before God. Then I've expressed a readiness for communion with God through the burnt offering and then a pure walk with God through the meal offering. Now, this last offering, what it does is it's celebration. This is a celebratory offering. And um, this one's really, really important because we're going to celebrate the fact that I have a relationship with God. I'm now clean in God's eyes and, and pure in his eyes because of the blood that was shed. And then I am ready to move on with God. I'm ready to walk with God. I'm ready to let him examine my life and work in my life. And now I'm ready to celebrate that relationship. I'm ready to celebrate that communion. Now, the Hebrew person looked forward to this particular offering because they were going to be able to keep a part of it. So when you would bring this particular animal to for this sacrifice, um, you got to keep a portion of the, the offering, and it represented your complete union with God, okay? So let me tell you how this would happen. Again, you would lay the animal on the altar, placing your hands on it, and you would kill it. The priest would catch the blood, sprinkle it around the altar. He then takes the fat of the animal, places it on the altar, and then offers it to God. And this is where it gets to be different. Listen to this carefully. With the help of the priest, you now offer to God the breast and right shoulder of the sacrifice. The breast represents your heart, 
and the shoulder represents your strength. The priest places his hands on yours, and together you move the sacrifice up and down, right in and left in a waving motion that resembles a T, the letter T. Anybody got an insight as to what that might be representative of? Cross. The cross, absolutely. Okay. So what God does, though, is he gives you back this portion. The high priest receives the breast portion, and the, the right shoulder goes to the priest that's helping you, but everything else you get to keep. Along with the animal sacrifice, you also bring some unleavened cakes and wafers mixed with oil. And then in the courtyard of the tabernacle, you consume, you eat the remainder of this sacrifice along with the loaves with your family and friends. So you're all there in the outer court of the tabernacle and you all partake of this together. And so what you're doing is you're celebrating together that now I have communion with God. Now I'm in relationship with God. Now I'm in fellowship with him and I have a covenant with him. I am in relationship with him. And because God returned his portion to you, you are symbolically feeding on his divine nature to become one with him. Think about that. God gave you, the high priest got his portion, the priest that helped you got your the other portion, but the main portion that was to God, you get to keep and you consume that with your family there in the outer court, and you're symbolically partaking of God's divine nature because now you're one with him. Now, is there anything that we do today as a group where we receive something and we're celebrating our communion with God? Holy communion. Yeah, absolutely. Holy communion. So the same thing is true. Jesus is the true meat and drink that satisf satisfies the cries and longings of a man's heart. And so that's what we're remembering. We're remembering in communion when we receive it, what Jesus did for us. And the portion of this offering that we get to keep is God's very own divine nature coming in us by the person and power of the Holy Spirit. You need to know something. That old sin nature is gone. You're no longer a sinner. You now have God's nature on the inside of you. And as you fellowship with him, that nature is working up out of you to cause you to become more like him. And because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and through his blood, we now walk in communion and fellowship with him. So you can see now why if a believer never moves past the sin offering and the trespass offering and never moves to these offerings right here, your relationship with God is only going to go so far. Okay. And, uh, you know, let me say this to you, and, and I, I hope this comes across like I mean it. God's intention was never for us to hang around the cross. Okay, I know that sounds sacrilegious, but it's not. Let me ask you a question. When Jesus was raised from the dead and he was ministering to the people, and then right when he was getting ready to ascend to heaven, 
Did he tell them, I need you to go back to Jerusalem and go back to Calvary where I hung on the cross and I died for you? No, he never tells believers to do that. Matter of fact, um, he's not still on the cross. Now, the cross happened, and thank God for the cross, because that was the place where he died for us. But the good news is he's not still hanging on that cross. And like some religions portray, you know, with their altarpieces, Jesus is not still on the cross. He was dead. He was buried. But he was resurrected, raised up for, to new life, just like you and I are born again. But here's what he told the disciples. He said, go to Jerusalem and wait for the power of the Holy Spirit, which will come on you. Here's my point. If you stay at the cross and you all you do is dwell at the cross, you never move past that and move to the place where God can really begin to work in you. Jesus did not stay at the cross, nor should we. Now, again, thank God for the cross. Thank God for what Jesus did at the cross. But he is not still hanging on the cross. He is alive. And because of what he did on the cross and because of what his resurrection provided for us, we now have the life and nature of God on the inside of us and we can become more like him as we fellowship with him, as we commune with him, as we feed upon his word, as we dwell in the power of the Holy Spirit and allow that oil to work in us like that meal offering. Amen? Amen. All right. Does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm. I know it's a lot of material to cover in just a short amount of time. But I wanted to cover some of the details on those sacrifices because I wanted us all to see how perfectly it paints a picture. You know, and, and, and again, I, I, I had to, as I was reviewing this this afternoon, I had to remind myself, God is so much smarter than we are. And, and you have to think, you know, um, a long, long time. More than a thousand years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene, God is laying the groundwork for everything that is going to take place in his sacrifice for us. And so it's very important that we understand this. But again, the whole point of all of this is, number one, the shedding of blood. It pays for our sin. It's what gives us a right to have a relationship with God. And God is the one who paid the penalty. He's the one that shed his blood for us so that we could have that relationship with him. And amen. I'm done. Amen. Praise Lord. God. Hallelujah. Amen. Well, I hope this helped you tonight. Stuff. You know, and, and what we'll probably do is we'll move on into this and we'll talk about some of the things with the Passover. And I'm telling you, the, the instructions that Moses received for the Passover uh, are just absolutely phenomenal when you see them in light of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for us. And I'm telling you, it'll, it'll help you. It'll open your eyes to a lot. And again, just cause everything to become so much more valuable to you in what Jesus did for us. Praise God. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Spring Hill Church podcast. 
We hope that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about the church, please feel free to visit us at springhill.cc.